welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, everybody, let's roll. I guess that's my new saying. I don't know if I like it as much, but I do uh, I do like it nonetheless. But uh, this is going to be a pretty cool podcast. Going to talk hunting for sure. I'm um, going to answer a few questions. And uh, yeah, it's we're in a transition period. We're in the period between um, me being sad about the fact that my Western hunting is over for the year and me being really jacked up that my whitetail season is about to start on Sunday. Um, there's a lot to be excited about, actually. So um, I'm gonna, I've am gonna. i kind of got several things I wanted to talk about throughout the podcast, but uh, I guess one of the first things I probably should talk about is um, right now it's September 26th, and I just got back from um, a little over a week in Montana, and also South Dakota. I normally put in for tags out there, and depending on what tags I draw, uh, that's kind of what I hunt. And this year, I kind of just wanted to go out on my own and just disconnect. So I didn't do an Insta story. I didn't have signal, but I didn't even try to film it to to play it later. Um, so I disconnected from everybody. A lot of my good friends were texting me saying, what the heck is going on? But uh, I just really wanted to get out and enjoy uh, some time out there with just not having, not having any of that on my mind. And it was really, really nice to do it, if I'm honest. Um, so I had a really good elk hunt. Um, saw less bulls than normal the elk were really busted up they were um some of the elk that i found were traveling probably four or five miles um so it was getting it was really tough because they were going they were actually going so far out in the wide open um that when they would start to come back um towards the timber and stuff and come back into those buttes they would be it would be really tough to cover enough ground in time to get there before they were there. The wind uh, switched a lot where they were, so I had to do a lot of sitting back on those bulls and not really uh, being able to to get after them the way that I would have liked to. Um, but I used a, I shot a really good bull, and I used a really good um, technique for this bull that um, was taught to me by Randy Ulmer years ago. Um, I saw Randy kill a pretty good bull, and I talked to him about some herd bulls that I had encountered and that I got really close to, but I could never really get them to commit. And, you know, Randy pretty much told me that there's two things that you kind of have to do in those situations. One would be if you got the wor- the bull so worked up and you challenged him so much to the point where he would, you know, you pretty much pissed him off and, and were close enough when you did that, then he may reply. Um, if he felt like you were so close that he wouldn't be able to back out of there with his cows. Um, but in this case, um, I knew that there was a herd bull. I had seen him. 
and I was actually paralleling him. He was probably a half mile um, beneath me. I had the wind really good. I was paralleling him, um, and then they went into a bedding area and just uh, was smart about it, just let him do their thing in the bedding area. Um, it was obvious from his bugles. He was bugling from a bedded um, spot. He wasn't moving around at all. He was in one location, so... Uh, we just sat there, had several encounters with um, satellite bulls that were kind of working the perimeter, and uh, a couple of them. Honestly, uh, if I was if I was anywhere else, I probably would have shot them. But I really I knew that there was a good bull there, and I kept telling myself, "You're not going to shoot the big one if you keep <laughs> shooting these satellite bulls." Which, honestly, I'm more than happy with. Um, but the bull ended up uh, coming up out of this draw and hitting this old fire road, or his cows did, and he was in the back. And it, one one thing I've learned is you really can't, you can never outwalk an elk. If the elk are walking and moving, you just can't really move fast enough. It was really dry. Um, it did rain several days, but as soon as the rain would stop, it was just dry and crunchy, so I was pretty fortunate that they actually took that old fire lane. Um, but all of a sudden, I could hear another bull in the distance, and the bull I was after started bugling to him. They were bugling back and forth, and the bull that I was after, um, which a lot of bulls do when they first get out of their bed, is he started just kind of trashing a tree and started in just doing it a little bit. But the more that other bull was bugling, the more this guy was really tearing up this tree and trying to really make his presence known. Um, so when I heard him really start to get after it, I did my best to find him with my binoculars. And I just made a beeline right to him. And once I got into about 30 yards uh, he was definitely able to see me at that point, but when I was looking at him with my binos, I could see that he had his eyes closed and he would really go at it for probably about 15 to 20 seconds and then he'd stop and he'd look around. So every time he would start in, I would just keep creeping, get low, keep creeping. I put a few little objects between us and then next thing I know, I'm I'm sitting there for, I think, about 16 minutes inside of 20 yards, and I kept drawing back, and I'm trying to find a lane um, through these little sticks and stuff. I could, I mean, he was right there, broadside, trashing this tree, but I could not find a shooting lane, and there was, honestly, there was a few times where I really, really wanted to. Um, I wanted to force a shot. I kept telling myself, don't do it. You're going to be so mad at yourself if you hit that little twig. And uh, eventually, he ended up turning away from that tree. And he, he was coming kind of... I thought he would just turn away from the tree and head right to his cows. And, and when he would do that, he would be broadside to me. And as soon as he started to turn away, I drew back one more time. And I was just waiting for him to step behind this one tree. But as soon as he came from behind that tree, there was about a split second where he was broadside to me. And luckily I didn't shoot then because he just whirled and turned and just turned and came down this little swell. And was literally as soon as he started up the swell, he was just right in my face. Uh, he had no idea I was even standing right there on the edge of this little road. Uh 
had no idea of my presence. And as soon as his uh, face came, he was actually bugling. And as soon as his face came up enough to expose uh, that frontal shot, I actually delivered an arrow right between the front shoulder and the sternum because he was slightly, he wasn't perfectly head on. He had a slight quarter to him. Um, and this is probably something to really talk about is the frontal shots. I wrote an article for Peterson's about um, elk hunting, and I talked specifically about uh, the frontal shot. And even though there's, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I guess there's controversy over the frontal shot. I really feel like that frontal shot in certain situations is applicable. Uh, I'm surprised I got that out this early in the morning, but um, I just feel like there's a couple things that we should really discuss in regards to a frontal shot. Um, frontal shots on TV have always gotten a lot of one. The networks pretty much won't let you do it, um, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm actually thankful to not be on TV right now. Is um, and hopefully. I know I keep saying this, but you know we're gonna. I am gonna make sure that I get this stuff available digitally to you guys. Um, but I feel like you're able to actually do these things and explain these things without rules and and all this criteria that's pretty much set in place according to the network and what types of outside pressures that they're getting um, from you know other types of anti-hunting groups. I think the important thing here is being able to really explain the things that may have some blood and guts on them. Um, things like frontal shots, you know, being able to talk about, you know, being able to actually show field dressing and field quartering uh, properly without worrying about how that animal is exposed because this is all important stuff to the hunters. Um, obviously I want to do it tastefully, but I, but I also think that some of it, uh, depending on the rule and how much the network would edit things out, you guys would get a diluted version of really what I wanted to share. Um, so the frontal shot is extremely lethal because on, on an elk, um, between the shoulder blades and above the sternum, just like with us, if you poke around on your neck. If you poke right on your trachea and your esophagus there, that is a that is a hollow hole going right in to your chest cavity. That is that is definitely a weak point. The main thing is if we had this massive neck and you were trying to shoot through um, a ton of neck flesh and neck meat before you got into that area, um, obviously there's your you're not going to have as high a percentage of chance because the vitals are inside of that cavity. They're not in the neck. Now, there's obviously two um, major um, arteries in the neck and in the windpipe as well, but you know we're talking about the true vitals. And in the front of the heart are all of the valves coming into that heart as well as a lot of, a lot of artery connections. Um, so if the shots are done correctly, it is extremely lethal. Um, but as a disclaimer, I want to say that there's several things that we need to consider as bow hunters, 
um, to make sure that this is an ethical choice. And one of the things is I don't favor this shot from an elevated position. So if you're elevated and you're having to shoot down to where you're going through a lot of neck um, flash and neck stuff until you get into that cavity, then you obviously, um, you're going to most likely not get the penetration that you need. Um, so the angle is critical. When I'm eye level with that target, I feel like all I have to do is get about eight to 10 inches within that, within that soft spot. And I'm going to be, um, in a very, very lethal area. Um, this was one thing I learned too, when I was, um, in South Africa, because I was there and we were talking about the different types of shot angles on different types of animals that aren't like a standard deer type animal. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was my pH was talking to me about how on like if for people that shot a giraffe, the frontal shot was actually a better shot because the scapula is so big and huge on a giraffe that most people couldn't have the penetration to get through there. But that frontal shot is, is, you know, it's almost as big as a TV on something that big and it's very soft there and you actually have more ability to get into the front of that heart valve and slow that blood flow down. So, um, Anyway, that's the shot that I took on this elk, and it was deadly, and it's not the first shot I took. Um, I actually took, on 9-11, um, I was with a friend, and we shot two bulls in uh, in New Mexico. And both of the bulls we called in to less than 10 yards, and both of those bulls were frontal shots, and both of them went down within... 25 yards um it they were extremely lethal shots and at that time i was not willing to take lethal um or frontal shots and there was about three different times where my buddy had called bulls into me and when he did the bulls came in looking for the call and they stopped looking directly at me or just past me and uh, he asked me several times, he said, man, didn't you have a shot? And I said, the only shot I had was straight on. And he said, um, and this was actually, he was he was a friend, but he was also a full-time guide and had been guiding many years. And he said, dude, you have to take that shot. If he's that close, it'll go right in there. Just focus on where the dark brown meets the light brown. And he said, that heart is only about 8 to 10 inches behind that. So I was reluctant. We talked about it several different times throughout the next few days. And sure enough, on 9-11, when we called my bull in, that bull came right to me screaming. And uh, he stopped and looked up and exposed that exact spot. And I sent an ACC right in there. And uh, it was devastating. Um, then as we were celebrating that bull and I was having him do some uh, a little bit of calling just for what we call b-roll in the in the film industry um, I was doing some b-roll of him calling and another bull answered and when that bull answered he looked at we looked across and we saw this bull and he was an over 300 inch bull maybe a 320 bull and he said man I got a tag I, I would I wish I could shoot that thing and I said well 
And he said, give me your bow. My bow is like three or four inches too long for him. But he just said, well, I'm going to call him close enough to where it doesn't matter. And when that bull came up, it actually stepped over my bull, which was laying on his side, uh, done. Stepped over my bull and kept coming and came to the same spot where mine had stopped. And uh, my buddy had drawn back and had that bow like pretty much I told I was saying don't clip your ear off because he was extended so far back and uh, that bull just walked within feet of him and he just pretty much put all those pins right in that soft spot and let it rip and uh, same thing his bull went right down Um, I did the same shot on antelope which I'm sure most of you have seen same thing inside of 10 yards ground level from a blind Um, That went through the entire length um, of that antelope. And then I've also done it on uh, my mule deer, uh, the big mule deer that I shot, the double dropper, same shot. Um, So the shot is definitely um, lethal, but I would urge you to really recognize, are you at ground level? Are you inside of 10 yards 15 yards at you know because the other thing too is your your window of kill zone is you know it's a pretty decent window it's 8 to 10 inches wide on like you know more of a deer type animal it's wider on an elk it's probably 12 inches wide on an elk but if that shot's far enough to where a sound going off directly in front of that animal they're gonna start to turn Um, and turn away from that sound is going to be their flinch or the reaction so as they're doing that obviously the further away that arrow is the more likely you are to hit that animal turning rather than keeping them that with that frontal shot so um, anyway I made the frontal shot Uh, I got uh, about 20 inches of penetration I actually went um, I hit the front the front of the scapula on the entrance side uh, broke some of that bone, went through um, pretty much the good stuff, caught one full lung, and then poked a hole out right at pretty much right at the bottom center of the sternum. Um, so as we were tracking, there was just a continual leak um, where it was coming out the bottom. And it was one lung. Um, I went and looked at the arrow. Um, the arrow um, broke off. I looked at the arrow. Um, actually, I think the arrow came out, if I remember right. Um, the way he jumped, he jumped off like about a 10-foot like cliff as he went down. Somehow it got pulled out. Uh, but he went a little ways. I could see the trail. I could see how, how he was hurting when he went off, too. Um, and then, so did what did what you should do. Um, if you don't hear a big animal like that go down, you should definitely give it time. Um, a big animal like that, you'll hear it crash. And if you don't, then it's always better to give it time. This is a valuable lesson. So I did uh, gave it time. I think uh, we just kind of enjoyed the morning, brewed some coffee. Um, I'm seriously, I'm seriously into. Uh, having coffee now in the mountains now that I've uh, kind of figured out how to do it with my jet boil so had some coffee and then uh, just went on the track job so for the track job this is equally important 
a lot of people when they're tracking animals they talk and they'll say like you know i you know i found some over here or whatever the best thing you can do is assume that that animal hasn't fully expired yet this is a this is a very critical mistake that people make when they're when they're trailing one you should always either have just a little bit of flagging or what works really good is just some toilet paper which i always have toilet paper in my backpack um, you could just take a little one square off and put it on top of a on top of a stick or on a stick um, the good thing about that is as soon as it rains you don't have to worry about you know contaminating the the timber but and the white the white toilet paper is really easy to see when you're tracking but if there is two people i always leave the second person on last blood i'll literally make them stand on that exact spot of last blood while i'll pursue and i make it very obvious that you should you should do that track job in the same manner as if you were actually stalking a bedded animal. Um, making little noise, not talking, not breaking sticks, not trampling around, but just literally still hunting and like hunting that blood trail, um, which is what I did. And as I came up and over the rise, I actually saw... Um, the bull was bedded down. He was obviously, um, you know, he was obviously, um, going to go down, uh, going to expire. But like I said, it was one lung, um, a couple, I think maybe one of the front arteries. So what I did was even though, um, even though he was there and I could tell that it wasn't, you know, I'm pretty sure things were in my favor, um, I loaded another arrow and I actually just crawled in underneath these pines, crawled as quiet and as silent as I could. And I got to about 20 yards from him and before, and I had to, before I could get a clear shot and went ahead and made a follow-up shot, um, just so that I could, you know, be as, as quick and ethical with that as possible. And that's, you know, that's the truth and reality of bow hunting. Um, a lot of people may not talk about a follow-up shot. I mean, a lot of people may want to just tell you that, oh yeah, he, he went and went down. Uh, but the truth is that's what, that's the reality of hunting. And that's what, if you're going to be a successful hunter and you're going to um, minimize your mistakes, then you really need to start thinking about these small details like this, tracking, slow stealthy you know because i can tell you that a lot of times once you jump that animal out of that first bed then your opportunity for recovery or your chances of recovery quickly goes much lower um where they bed down that first time is most likely where they're gonna you know where where it's gonna end for them um, but if you go there and spook them and adrenalize them then they can go a long way like that. Um, so it was a it was a cool, a very cool hunt. It was an awesome bull, uh, biggest bull I've ever shot. And uh, I don't know, I was I was just excited. Kind of sat there, enjoyed it. Um, was just really really pumped. I was you know took took it was a nice cool cool day. 
really cool day. Um, it was sunny for a little bit, cloudy for a little bit. So I went ahead and uh, just took my time. Uh, we actually were able to uh, to come in there and we we kind of took them out in pieces and then um, I was able to do all the deboning and stuff like that uh, out once we got back to camp. So um, yeah, that was pretty exciting. Um, and then from there, I went... Uh, what normally what I do is I'll hunt elk in the mornings. I like mornings for elk because if you can get in front of them, once they get to the timber, you have a, you have a good hunt. Um, you know, if you can get, if you can get in there with them and have the wind in your favor, they don't bed down right away. They kind of get to their safe zone and they're, and they, you know, they kind of meander about and, and browse and things like that. So, I like the mornings for elk. In the evenings, a lot of times the elk will, they won't make it. They're almost a little bit later than whitetails um, or or mule deer for that matter. Um, you're more likely to see them, elk or muleys, move first, especially in the earlier season like this. Um, so in the evenings, I normally focus on whitetails. Um, I'll go more towards river bottoms <coughs> or ag fields like clover or well alfalfa out there alfalfa or hay fields um, coming out of the river bottoms or the little brushy draws um, and then during the day I actually drive um, after my elk hunt in the morning I'll drive back across into South Dakota to hunt uh, antelope I'll normally I'll normally get a blind or something set out out there or I'll spot and stalk um, and I'll go and do that for four or five hours throughout the day. So really my only downtime is the travel um, between uh, eastern Montana and western South Dakota. Uh, but I was able to uh, shoot a really cool whitetail as well. Um, and then uh, on the very last day, last 30 minutes, um, it was really, for those of you who are out west... Uh, there was a lot of rain um, for a few days, so it was real rainy. It was real cold and foggy and all that good stuff. And um, I ended up doing a spot and stock on an antelope and smoked it. It was a bomb, too. I'll, I'll admit it. It was 75.4 yards, but one shot, and it was over with in about four seconds. But it was like the last... 30 minutes of uh, daylight and it worked really cool actually used um, this 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 antelope was bedded with his doe out um, in the middle he had, I, I'd seen him breeding her several times throughout the day but he never would come by my blind well he actually did come by my blind several times um, and for whatever reason the the farmer, um, where I had permission, he actually moved his cows into this massive pasture, which was, you know, I don't know, it's probably a thousand acres, the pasture. And as, uh, all these cows come in, I realize I'm in a bale blind <laughs> and normally those cows only get fed bales in the, um, winter time. So literally I was food and I had probably, um, I don't know, 200 of those black Angus just mooing and 
headbutting and biting my blind. Um, I actually took some footage from inside of my blind, which I'll uh, share with you guys. It was pretty pretty hilarious. Um, but the, I was looking at that antelope the whole time, and the antelope kept running all throughout and all around throughout the cows. So what I did was uh, at the end of the day there, I actually kind of just got amongst the cows and I had I had on my my black sweatshirt and I just kind of walked throughout all these hundreds of cows and got to where I could see um, that antelope buck that was standing above his bedded doe and got a range loaded up waited for it to be clear of of cattle and uh, made my shot so um, but I didn't want to, uh, I don't want to share everything at one time, but it was a very successful trip out west um, and one that I just kind of enjoyed for myself. So that's pretty much the story of the western hunt. It was a great hunt. I'm thankful and all that good stuff. Um, But now what I want to do is get into some of these questions that I see from you on social media. All right, so the first question is actually from Matt Waldorf713. He's saying, uh, congratulated me on my bull. Thank you. I have a question for the morning podcast. I shoot a Carbon Defiant 34, 50 to 60 pounds with number two cams. Both the cams and the limbs are maxed out. Um, my handheld draw scale reads 54 pounds at peak weight. Unfortunately, uh, I still have the factory strings, um, even though they're in great condition. Any suggestions on what I need to do to get my draw weight up with my current setup? So the reason he mentioned uh, his factory strings is uh, for a couple reasons. One, because of the fact that um, if you change your strings and cables, you can quickly start to change uh, what your bow's ability for peak weight or draw length Um, could be so um, there's two things one it's good that you let me know that because um, obviously I I can only assume at this point that it would still be within factory spec with axle axle length and brace height Um, and those are both relative to your bow making weight because of the fact of the length of your strings and cables is what is going to determine how much bend or how much preload is what we would call it uh, in the limbs themselves. So if your limbs have proper preload, then um, they're going to be bent enough to as you continue to bend them, they'll get the weight that they need. So Um, And a lot of times what we do is, um, or what I would do, is I would preload my limbs just a little bit more so that I could get some extra weight. So in other words, um, when I put on a new set of strings and cables, a lot of times I'll twist my cables up um, maybe a little bit shorter than, than what they would normally be and then Um, which in turn, twisting your cables up or shortening your cables, it's going to actually increase draw length and increase your peak weight. Um, But then what I would do to kind of counteract that is if you twist your string down, so in other words, you're shortening your, your cables and you're shortening your string proportionally, 
it starts to bend those limbs a little bit more and um you know there's well there's kind of a a point of no return you preload them too much it's not like you're going to keep getting extra weight um you'll actually start to lose efficiency because you're your cam indexing, which is another subject, but um, you can slightly change your peak weights by preloading your limbs. Normally, you can get about four or five pounds out of them uh, by shortening the two equally. So, I would always start out by shortening my cables a little bit, um, getting that peak weight a little bit over my desired peak weight. Um, but a lot of times, in doing that, you're going to get your draw length a little bit longer than what you desire, too. So, then you would twist that string um, up so that it would shorten, um, which shortening the string is going to counteract shortening cables. So um, shortening the key, the string would uh, decrease draw length and then decrease poundage. Um, so you're kind of counteracting that. And the reason you should, the best way to think of this is um, if you draw... Uh, two parallel lines draw two imagine two parallel lines and then between the two parallel two parallel lines on each end uh, go ahead and put a dot right in the center of those parallel limbs uh, lines put a dot on each end of however long that those lines are that you're imagining and so those dots are going to represent the axles of your cams so that's the axle that your cam pivots around so if you shorten one uh, side of that line um, you would essentially you're going to roll um, as you shorten it you're going to roll that cam or if there were cams around those those dots that i talked to you about you would roll those cams towards the shorter line so then by shortening the other line you're essentially bringing uh, that cam back to a neutral position so that's why shortening the cable increases poundage increases draw whereas uh, shortening the string will then decrease poundage decrease draw and then the exact opposite is true um, you know, if you did lengthen your cables, um, you would decrease your poundage, decrease your draw, which is why some people that have either a poorly made string, poor material within that string, um, or just, you know, go through extreme heats and things like that. If those cables stretch out and elongate, then you will lose some poundage and, um, Essentially, you'll lose your short draw length will shorten up a little bit. What gets tricky about different cam systems is, you know, certain strings, certain cables. Um, for example, on my Hoyt, there are essentially three different elements to that cam system: the cam and a half system. So there's a string, there is a power cable or a bus cable. The power cable is the one that goes up and splits at the top. That would be a power cable. Um, and then there's a control cable. And the control cable goes from the bottom cam to the top cam. Um, it does not split. Um, and it pretty much just goes around around um, around part of the cam down at the bottom. So. The control cable is essentially syncing those two cams together. So um, 
what we found out is certain cables or strings have different types of pressures on them at different points of you either having the bow at rest or pulling that bow back um, and how those strings elongate we actually call that rebound um, so certain strings certain cables depending on the cam system um, can take different loads so that's why um, in the past uh, a lot of target archers would beef up their cables a little bit because the cables especially with target archers that are holding at full draw a lot longer the rebound um, is going to be a little bit more noticeable than a bow hunter that just pulls back and hits the trigger um, so the rebound eventually that'll start to elongate just a little bit and that's kind of and that's kind of why people like to have that top cam uh, slightly touching before the bottom too um, on those particular systems uh, just to kind of uh, compensate for that rebound. Good strings and cables definitely help that, um, but all that stuff's relative to poundage and draw length. So to get back on track specifically to your question um, I, I mean I wanted to talk a little bit about that string and cable and how that affects things and why it was important for you to tell me that but in saying that uh, the one thing that you told me that kind of raises a little flag is when you said um, right there in the middle you said handheld draw weight scale so um, if it is the spring type so in other words it almost has like a little pigtail corkscrew looking type on the end and it's like a t-handle that you grab it and as you pull back it compresses a spring and slides this little meter if that is the kind of scale that you have then i can tell you that um Nine out of ten times, those scales are four to five pounds off. Um, that was always something that really sucked um, as a bow rep was I would deal with that a lot with archery shops. They would call and say, hey, your bows aren't making poundage. Um, and then it would be, you know, after you got two or three calls like that, you would end up just, you know, having them send a bow back. And then we would check it on the digital scales and the poundage is, you know, right there within half a pound, one pound. And, you know, we just realized really quick um, that those handheld spring scales, they pretty much suck. Um, and it actually got to be a bit of a humor back when I shot competitive archery. You know, you have a equipment inspection. So... Um, in other words, when I shot um, with the U.S. team, we had uh, a 60-pound maximum draw weight, uh, plus or minus 2 pounds. So, And that was kind of to make up for the scales. Well, most of the scales were at least 5 pounds off. So a lot of us, you could easily go and uh, shoot 65 to 66 pounds and you would still be within weight. But once Easton came out with the digital scale, they pretty much screwed us all because we had to start actually shooting real weight at that point. But 
what we would do is um, so the way that spring scale works, the handheld one, as you hold the T handle, you know, essentially you're holding a cylinder, and that corkscrew end um, is pretty much a rod that goes inside, and it has a spring, and as you as you pull, it compresses that spring and it slides that little dial to where your peak to show you what your peak weight is. Well, because it's a rod inside a cylinder, um, all you have to do to really skew that number is actually kind of twist your hand just a little bit and you would ap apply friction on that rod as it slides through the cylinder. So um, we would always kind of grab those handheld scales uh, with the judges and they would want to do your equipment inspection and we would grab that scale and just turn it a little bit, pull back, and then they would just be like, oh, Mr. Dudley, uh, okay, uh, 42 pounds. It's like, I mean, I don't know how many times uh, the girls would come up and they would pull their bows back and they'd be in the 50s and then I think I got mine. I twisted it enough one time to make it draw about 41 pounds. Um, so if you're using that type of scale, your question to me is fairly irrelevant because those scales are not that good. You really need um, a digital scale. A lot of the digital ones are pretty dang accurate. The spring ones are not. Uh, however, if you do in fact find out that your limbs are light, which is very, very uncommon, um, super uncommon for Hoyt, in fact. Uh, it's very rare that the, that the limbs are not going to make weight. Um, that's super uncommon. What you'd want to do is uh, go ahead and just twist up those cables. I would probably... I'm going to realistically say there's no way that your limbs are six pounds heavy unless they're marked incorrectly or six pounds light unless they're marked incorrectly. Um, but I can get you about three to four pounds if you take those cables. And this is um, the other thing, too, is, you know, with strings and cables, the more they're twisted, the faster they will shorten as you add twists. So if you already have a lot of twists in your strings and cables, six twists can do a lot. But I would start with about six to seven twists, um, maybe up to ten. Start with those in your uh, your power cable, and then do it in your control cable as well. You'll need to draw the bow back a few times to see if you uh, make sure that your cams are in sync, and then uh, from there. If by chance your bow now feels like it's really long, you really have two options. You can either twist that string back down and hope that you're preloading a limbs enough to maintain that weight, or you can actually just move that module to, um, you know, say right now you're in a D position or an E position, you can just move it one position shorter. Um, so I would try that. If you're a single cam shooter or if you're like a Matthews shooter, um, single cams, uh, poundage is quickly affected by just the cable. So um, adding twists to the bottom cable, which you're not going to have a top one, but adding twists to that bottom cable will quickly increase uh, your poundage as well. So uh, hopefully that helps you out and uh, good luck. Uh, 
good luck with everything. So thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see here. Next question is going to be from GW240. Uh, I just screenshotted these, so I'm just now reading them. Uh, let's see. I just shot my knock to it. Oh, crap. <laughs> Sorry, GW. I've told you that I wouldn't uh, mention your name. I almost, I almost don't want to... I almost don't want to do this. I just now realized that's what I promised you. So I'm either going to have to skip your question or, well, let's just say, let's just say, um, J dud. That's me. Uh, J dud this one time, um, this one time I accidentally let go of my knock to it and I shot it into the back of my, my Bose riser um, the release seems okay, uh, but just wondered how to tell if it will be safe to shoot again or not. Um, and yeah, so for those of you who have tried to shoot a release by relaxing the hand, or if anyone has had extreme cases of target panic where they just let go of the release, which I've seen a lot, and honestly, this leads me into a pretty important topic. So, um, when any of you buy anything from the store, especially when it's relative to, I mean, I'm not really a specialist in like t-shirts and stuff when it comes to like returns. However, I know if we get a t-shirt returned and there's like back hair in it and it smells like aqua velva, chances are, uh, you can't really claim that it's unused. Um, (laughs) but when it comes to the releases, there's a lot of times where we get a release and the first thing it says is the jaw broke on the release when I was pulling back or people say the thumb trigger uh, broke on the release when I was at full draw and listen people, this isn't my first rodeo. Uh, you know, I've, I've sold hundreds of thousands of bows to people uh when i was a rep i've shot i don't know well i know i've shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of arrows and i've had releases slip out of my hands i've shot i mean heck i was at a world championship i was actually at the asa world championship uh i was leading shooter of the year and I went to the first, this was, this is actually a string related issue. Uh, this was back when strings were stretching a lot because they were made out of, um, like fast flight back then. So strings would stretch a lot. And then the original, um, kind of Vectran product came out called S4. S4 was, it didn't have any stretch as a string, but it was back then, uh, they, it was just pure S4. Um, and the characteristics of S4 as a material is it has incredible strength being pulled on it linear. But when you flex it side to side, it's just like a paper clip. So if you bend it back, bend it forward, 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 it'll just giveaway it's not like it slowly starts to kind of come apart it just busts 
and we really didn't know that at the time and I was shooting a bow that had a pretty um, aggressive bend as it came around the cable so I was actually on the official practice range the the uh, day before the tournament started and was getting ready just before the pro-am and I pulled my bow back and as I was sitting there and pulling against the back wall that cable just broke and I was shooting a single cam at the time and that since my release was hooked onto the string the string and when it when that thing broke everything came apart and the cam came out of the limb and the cam came around and since my release was hooked to the uh, cable somehow or another my thumb never opened the jaw so it took it out of my hand and I literally shot my release right it the release shot forward hit the top of my arrow shaft bent my arrow rest flat to the bow bounced off the arrow rest and went right through uh, the center of my super D scope which if, for those of you who uh, don't remember how big those were. That was a scope that was about the size of the top of this Yeti cup right now. And, uh, so yeah, I've shot, I've shot arrows through my hand. I've shot, almost shot my finger off. I've shot re releases through my riser. Um, I've shot, I've shot a lot of stuff. Um, I've, I mean, I've, I've shot a lot of things. I've seen a lot of stuff happen. So, um, when we get a release back and there's a big scuff mark on the side of it, I know it was dropped. I've dropped releases a lot. I drop them a lot. And I think I've talked about this in the past. There's a big importance to making sure that the parts within that release are hardened parts, um, because you want to make sure those edges are always on 90 degree edges. You want perfect edges so that you don't feel the travel of that release as two round edges are sliding along one another. You don't want to feel that. Um, so yeah, the release has hardened parts. What I'll tell you about that, the goods and the bads is it's either those parts are either broke or they're not. I've never really seen them be in the middle. Um, so I would say if you did shoot, uh, your release through your riser, um, like Jay Dud did, um, then that's me. It's not someone else. Uh, then I would say two things. One, uh, definitely get your bow to a pro shop just to inspect it. Now, if it's an aluminum riser, you're probably going to have a big chunk out of the back of it. Carbon riser, probably the same. I've actually had several people do this. I don't know um, what people are doing, but we've had, I bet I've had two dozen people shoot their releases through their bows. Uh, so... You know, and, and actually, uh, you know, one time someone was not willing to admit that, um, and I did, I did help them out, but, you know, you got to take responsibility about this stuff. You know, if I go and buy a brand new truck and freaking text and drive and plow that thing through someone's mailbox, I can't go to, go to Ram and say, Hey, uh, yeah, my front bumper's all broken apart. I don't know what happened. Uh, so take your bow to the shop, let them look at it. 
let them make sure there's nothing structurally uh, that's going to harm you. And then, um, you know, I would cock the release and fire it a few times. I think if it's okay, then it's probably going to be okay. Um, go ahead and try it, get a piece of loop material and try it with that, you know, try pulling on that loop material, uh, just kind of almost the same as if you're using one of those right releases, which I've talked about, it's kind of a shot trainer. Um, and if it's holding that, then you should be good if you're concerned about it. And if you know that you're, it's going to take a little while for your bow, just go ahead and send an email or make a call to to uh, Forrest at Carter Enterprises. And that's one of the reasons why I partnered with Carter because they stand behind their product. They're awesome people. Forrest is a good dude. Um, very overworked, but he can rebuild that release in a matter of probably a minute or less. So um, if you're concerned about it and you're worried about safety, then that would be my recommendation and uh yeah so sorry about the incident um but i guess i'll use it as a um public service announcement for people to uh you know be careful with that stuff and be honest if you break something on a rest if you break something on a release if you uh wear your t-shirt i would just say tell the truth be honest um i've always found that as a manufacturer when you know people tell the truth and they're just being honest with you about uh what did happen sometimes you get uh, the benefit of the doubt and um and it'll it'll play more in your favor than this than the people immediately assuming that you're lying um so I hope it works out, dude. Appreciate it. Uh, next question here is from, I think it's Bennett Talica. I never, I see your name a lot, but I didn't know if you like Metallica. Have you Bennett? Bennett Metallica? Bennett a Metallica concert? I don't know how to, how to pronounce your, your, your handle there, but anyway, you say, uh, I've been up in central Wisconsin since Thursday hunting whitetails. The weather's been extremely hot, extremely humid, uh, 91 to 95 degrees, down to 70 at night. Haven't seen any deer movement. What are your thoughts on hunting when it's hot out? Is it a total waste of time? When I decided, when I decided to go on during these temperatures, I was uh, more concerned with just recovering my deer and getting the meat cooled down in time, but had no idea about the heat factoring into my hunting. So, yeah, this is uh, really important. It's uh, it's about four something in the morning right now. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely um, it's it's early, but I think I've been up for about two hours before this. Um, but what I was doing was I was actually going through my, uh, emails and all that jazz. And I was going through my cards, my SD cards. Um, and the reason I was doing that was because I just pulled all my cards, um, from this, from the, really the mid middle of August until now as it's the last day of September. 
Um, so I was looking at pretty much my deer movement um, on the different places. I have about six different places that I have cameras out and stuff like that. Um, so I was really looking at that and, you know, it's funny. I always start when I pull camera cards, I always start at like what the newest picture is. So I'll always start like looking at yesterday and then going backwards all the way until the first day I put the camera out and it's, it never fails this time of the year. You know, I start looking and it's, you know, going through, going through, going through, going through. Oh, here's a buck. It's 12 a.m. It's 2 a.m. It's 1.30 a.m. It's 4 a.m. And then, you know, that's when the last week. Then you keep going back and you keep going back. And anyway, you get all the way back until end of August, beginning of September. And then all of a sudden you're seeing those same bucks come out at 7, 10 at night. You know, then it's eight o'clock at night then it's 10 o'clock at night so you know their characteristics are they continually start to become more and more nocturnal right now and this is uh it's a really important thing because um having bucks that are on their feet and having bucks that are um that are visible during the daylight right now, that's super, super critical to having success during this early season. And if you're not patterning deer and if you're not doing your homework, then there's a good chance that these first few weeks of your season are really, really going to suck. So last year in uh, Oklahoma, um, which actually I'm going to, I'll be going to the same hunt here in a few days. Uh, we had several cameras out and, you know, got a lot of pictures of deer. Uh, however, uh, you know, again, closer to when season opened, all of a sudden those deer started becoming more and more nocturnal. I had a buck that I was actually set up for, a uh, buck that we called Malibu. And that buck was like clockwork. He was a day walker, clockwork, clockwork, clockwork. All of a sudden that velvet came off that third week of September. And boom, that deer was instantly nocturnal. And for me, game was over. Uh, however, another deer on the place that my buddy Eric was hunting, uh, you know, we pulled cards and we had daylight pictures of him two days before that, before the night where he shot his buck. And, uh, the buck that he really, that actually wasn't even a buck that was on his hit list. That was a buck that was just a last minute buck that came in, um, to a new area. So, uh, literally on the way to Eric's stand, he ended up just making a split decision of, you know what, the biggest deer I've been wanting isn't really giving me daytime pictures. I'm just going to go see what happens on this one that's been out the last two nights during the daylight hours. He ended up going out and that's what we call day walkers. If you have a mature deer that is on his feet during the daytime during this early season, then you better strike uh, while the iron's hot. And, you know, homework is what is going to produce for you in those situations. Um, actually I'm super impressed. I'm going to post a picture on my social media today 
uh, about, uh, I guess about six or eight weeks ago, um, I finally got some of the new, those new 4K cameras. Um, Stealth Cam makes them. I saw them at the ATA show. I had ordered some and I just got them like mid-August. And so this was the first time I pulled cards ridiculous it's super super cool um there's sound you can i can actually i can hear there's a couple videos i got with coyotes running through my food plot i can hear the feet of the coyotes like running through the clover and uh, i can hear deer sniffing i can hear turkeys calling it's got sound and it literally videos at the same same quality or Honestly, it's probably better quality than what my iPhone does when it has really good lighting. Um, but all you know, with the infrared and stuff, it still has great video. But you know, getting those cameras out and doing that homework right now—that's the name of the game. And yeah, when it starts to get hot, then if you haven't done your homework, then you're already at a disadvantage. If you have done your homework and you see those hot temperatures coming, which is this is something I did yesterday, um, I went and hauled in fresh water. Uh, season opens here in Iowa tomorrow. And uh, so I don't, honestly, based on the pictures, I don't think I'm going to uh, put much time into hunting this first week. Um, just because I really feel like, again, I've talked about it a lot imprinting. Um, so I don't want to leave an imprint in, in the areas that I hunt when I know I don't have a deer that's on his hooves during the daytime right now. And the moon is coming around. Um, last night, right before dark, the moon was already pretty high and it was about a I don't know, five-eighths moon. I don't know what you call that, but it was about five-eighths moon. It was pretty high. So that moon um, towards the end of this next week is going to be kind of almost a full moon coming up before dark, and that's going to be a great time, some great evenings to get out on food plots. So when you see that moon coming up um, with a few hours before daylight, that's going to be the key. Um, and then finding the combination that's right. So it's hot. I'm actually, uh, I hauled in water and put water in some tanks that I've buried in the ground um, so that there's fresh water there. I've had a lot of luck in the past um, hunting over water, and so if you've got a good pond or things like that, it could definitely uh, do well. Um, another thing too is, uh, here in Iowa, uh, unfortunately, uh, here in our County, we've had our first cases of EHD again, and we've, uh, my game warden's showing me several, uh, pictures of bucks that they're pulling out of ponds. Heartbreaking. I hope we don't have another major outbreak of that, um, which was also another reason why I got out and kind of checked some of my water and uh, made sure there was no floating deer, and then uh, which I did not have any. And um, and this is going to be pretty important. This is going to be a very valuable uh, experience because if everything in our county is actually if the if EHD is hits a bunch of deer in our county again and throughout Iowa, 
I know it's hitting again up in uh, South Dakota, unfortunately. There's a few dead deer um, as I was coming through South Dakota from Montana last week. Uh, there's a few dead deer in uh, in the river. So uh, I know it's hitting South Dakota. But uh, here in Iowa, if I do not get it, then I'm going to make an assumption that it's definitely because of I've been feeding this brand new blend from uh, Garland Animal Wellness. And I guess, I guess I will say the thing that bums me out is you're not allowed to to bait or hunt over bait at all in Iowa. So I actually had to remove um, all of like where I, where I feed and supplement. I've had to like remove those areas. Um, a lot of times if I feed in bulk feeders, I'll actually cap the spouts and then duct tape them um you know and then i'll take pictures of that you got to document it um so but the product that i put out um actually has the new garland animal wellness product has a couple different really key elements but one of the elements is the repel tech and repel tech is actually a brand new um proprietary substance that actually um, repels biting insects so um, my tip my deer don't have ticks on them I'm not seeing flies around their eyes or their nose or their antlers and if that's the case and the midge is you know pretty much a fly that is going to go up into their nose if this works, if that repel tech also works on that midge fly, this is going to be a game changer for our industry. Um, but more or less, it's you know, if you're allowed to, to supplement year round, um, if this is the case, I would say anyone who's got deer that they're worried about this happening to them uh, during the EHD months, which are normally the hottest times of the month, and from what I've been told. Um, what I've been told th this newest like little strain of EHD is it's like a delayed one so it's about a six week process so um, the deer that are dying right now they're saying our deer that were actually bit almost six weeks ago during the drought the hot drought part of our season which is if that's the case it could save me because I was I did have repel tech out uh, for that whole time so uh, we'll see what happens but uh, to get real specific to that question regarding hunting early high temperatures uh, obviously moon is gonna you know full moon and hot I would say unless you're getting unless you're doing recon and patterning or seeing pictures of deer walking on their feet during daylight then you need to in my opinion don't hunt your good spots let them let the deer be on their feet be strike without expectation that's the key to my success uh, there's been a lot of years where I just kind of hunt my fringes, I'll hunt the borders, I'll hunt what I call observation stands. 
So a lot of times around the perimeters or even I'll get permission from neighboring farms that aren't in my good stuff. They may be boring, but I may just jump in there for the last hour of the day um, just to get up in like a high spot to be able to watch movement throughout my whole area and just kind of see what's moving around. Um, but observation stands are, are a very, very smart um, strategy. Um, otherwise, uh, otherwise, the thing to do would be um, just get water out there, get a camera on the water, and try to get something coming in when it's this hot. So... Um, Let's see here. Uh, next question here um, is says, uh, Mr. Dudley, I hunt northwest Arkansas, and I typically only hunt whitetails out of a tree stand, and we do not get a lot of wind. I've been thinking of doing a four-fletch uh, just to test it out, but was wondering what you think of doing a four-fletch with a one- or two-degree helical... Um, and what vein should I be using? So we kind of really jump subjects here. Like I said, these are just totally random. I'm doing screenshots of questions that are pretty much made on different posts that I have. So um, yeah, in, in regards to that, if you're not dealing with a lot of wind, and I think the reason he's talking about that is he's talking about crosswinds. Um, so if he's not dealing with a lot of wind, then you can certainly um, get away with... Uh, a, a magnitude of fletching choices. Um, honestly, if you're not dealing with a lot of wind, um, you know, there's benefits to shooting, you know, three long fletches versus four short fletches. Um, with Sharon this year, I'm, she's shooting, um, a six fletch, which looks really cool, uh, flying through the air and it's also your odds of getting your broadheads to index are incredibly high which this was actually a question I want to make sure I get back on that subject of indexing your broadheads or lining your broadheads up with your veins um, for fixed blade broadheads so um, she's shooting a six fletch now last year I shot a four fletch this year I'm shooting a three fletch but with longer fletching so I would say the best thing for you to do, especially if you don't have wind, at that point you have open options. As long as you're shooting a fallaway style rest, which is going to allow for clearance for all those different types of configurations. And the best thing to do is just fletch up two or three arrows in those different configurations and see which one shoots best with your arrow and broadhead combination. Put the broadheads that you're shooting on that arrow and just give it a shot. Um, different length arrows, different spine reactions according to the type of bow that you're shooting you know, and how that combines with the arrow that you're shooting. All those different things are going to give you different results. So the best thing really is for you to go and try it. I can tell you that you know, when it comes to shooting a compact, a super compact head or a, or a mechanical style head, uh, having that those short four fletch is a pretty dang good option. Um, I actually really like the uh, six fletch on Harry and Sharon's arrows. Uh, I may or may not 
use that next year. They do have a little bit more drag. So that's the downside is there is more drag. So they're going to slow down faster. Um, but if you're shooting a setup to where you know your maximum distance is more whitetail oriented, then you're not going to be shooting those super long shots anyway. So, um, you know, you kind of have to factor that in. Um, and this is relative to um, when it comes to like um, deceleration of the arrow. Yesterday on my Instagram, I actually posted, I kind of for a uh, Friday, for a, I forgot what I called it, Flashback Friday, I kind of showed some videos um, from when I was shooting with my mouth after my post-op uh, shoulder situation. So, um what you know several people were saying man um what arrow were you shooting it seems like it was going pretty fast so because i was shooting lower poundage with my mouth um i actually made a decision which is a very constant debate in the archery world of fast arrow versus slow arrow and so what i found throughout my years of testing um, just speed versus momentum, I found that within a certain distance, speed has benefits, but then after certain distances, it does not. So in regards to my bear hunts that I had, um, I actually chose, I chose speed over the momentum. And the reason I did was because because I had to shorten my draw length a little bit um, to shoot with my mouth and because I had to reduce my poundage in order to shoot with my mouth, um, I knew that I'm, my pin gaps were going to be pretty spread apart. And in order to be more accurate, I didn't want to have a half inch gap between my 20 and 30. So because I knew that I wasn't really going to take any shots. 40 was 40 was my for sure maximum with my mouth, but I really that probably would have been more of a follow-up shot situation like if I would have maybe had an arrow in something and needed a follow-up arrow, I could have probably shot that. Um, but I chose the speed because I knew that realistically I didn't want to shoot anything over 30 yards, so I knew I needed to be close. And I wanted my pin gaps as tight as possible um, just so that when I'm aiming, I wasn't having to compensate so much because it, it was pretty tough to hold the bow perfectly still. So I chose speed, and what I decided to go with, I went with a very light arrow. I shot a Easton Hex, um, and I think I shot a standard insert, um, which is very light, and at uh, 55 pounds with that bow, um, I think I was still getting almost 290 or 300 feet per second uh, because my arrow was, you know, maybe five grains per pound. It was really, really light. Um, so I chose the speed over the energy, um, and I also shot a uh, a Rage Plus P for some of them. But then I shot a, um, a tripan, a muzzy tripan for some of the other ones. Um, but the one thing I will say is even though it was 
the bow was really fast that way, and it worked pretty good on bears um, because bears, for the most part, if you hit bear behind the arm bone, like if you if you get behind that main arm bone, they're pretty soft, uh, and arrows just zip right through them. Uh, I actually had more trouble with penetration on turkeys. Uh, that lighter arrow on a turkey, turkeys absorb a lot of energy. It's kind of like um, it's like shooting your arrow at a bag target. When that bag target, when the material within the bag compresses and almost like lets air out, a lot of times you get a turkey that's strutting and he's kind of puffed up and his wings are off his body just a little bit. You know, when you hit them, it, all that stuff has to compress down. Plus, you know, they're pretty light and they're on their feet and they can get taken off their feet pretty fast. So like when you hit a turkey and it like comes off the ground, it's almost like someone that gets hit with a punch and he's jumping and coming off the ground with the punch versus one that's just pinned down and solid and in a very firm stance. Uh, you know, they'll absorb a lot more uh a lot more energy if you're if you're rigid and solid so uh with turkeys because they come off their feet i was having more trouble with penetration with them but with bears they're on all four they're normally not absorbing that arrow they're on all four everything's solid everything's taunt and you get really good pass throughs um so that's pretty much what i used uh for that specifically um and I guess another thing, uh, just to just to talk about here, um, in regards to that, is I actually shot um, that arrow is faster, even though I was shooting closer range. I shot a longer fletch with a little bit more severe angle. If you do shoot multiple fletches, like a four or a six then you are going to have to reduce your angle or your offset in order to get all of them on that shaft and to get them to fit the shaft correctly unless you're shooting a slightly bigger diameter shaft like for sure a, for sure a full size carbon or larger probably 6 millimeter or larger you'd be able to to have a little bit of an offset but uh, if you're shooting anything five millimeter or less, you'll probably have to go down to that one or two degree offset. But main thing is play around with it, and uh, you'll figure out pretty quick uh, what's what's best for you. Uh, next question here is um, it's from, and I don't know who the the last question was from uh, Ethan underscore Todd ten. This question is from the James West. And he says, would it be better to shoot heavier broadheads or just use brass inserts to achieve that better FOC? Is there really any measurable difference in how they fly? So there certainly is difference in how arrows fly depending on the length of the ferrules. So if the ferrules are longer um, or if the ferrules are shorter, same thing with blades, you know, blades that have a longer sloped blade, more surface area. Um, I really feel like more surface area means um, you're gonna need more surface area on the front, means you're gonna need more surface area on the back to get it to um, to steer properly. So um, I really feel like 
I like shorter, compact designs. Um, now, in saying that, the Rage Tripan is longer than a hypodermic, um, and it it does fly slightly slightly different, um, but it still flies really good, especially compared to a fixed blade head. Um, so when it comes to a fixed blade head, I really like, I guess if I were to just offhand pick my favorites, um, I would say uh, when it comes to just broadheads that I've shot that fly really good, trocars, um, old Rocky Mountain turbos flew really good. Um, trocars are very similar to that. Uh, the Wackums have always flown really well. Um, and slick tricks flew well, and these are all broadheads that are short, compact heads. So, my advice is always to uh, load your arrow up with some heavier points, um, just so that you can shoot those shorter, compact designs. I've always really liked the 100 grain designs more so than the 125s um so you know i i know i saw the other day um the brad of all brads was talking about an arrow that he was wanting to shoot but pretty much said uh i think he was talking about wanting to try the tripans but said you know you really can't try them because they don't have them in 125 grain and He's already got like hit inserts inside of glued inside of a shaft, so it's not like he can replace those with a heavier insert to then go down. So he's having to after his tuning, he found out that the 125 grain head does in fact work better because it's the hill method. You know the spine is reacting better, um, but in saying that, um, he's well, in saying that, he's uh, he's having to shoot that head out of necessity, but realistically, he would have been better off. If he knew that, he'd be better off going to a shorter, more compact broadhead design and then just increasing his, uh, his insert weight to get that FOC. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I will use field points, like heavier field points. I've got everything from 75s up to 150s, um, which is a good way to do the hill method, especially if you like if your limbs are bottomed out and you can't increase your poundage anymore to see if weakening that that arrow spine will help you. Um, and you'll have to go back in podcasts to listen to something regarding the hill method. Um, and how you know adjusting spine is gonna is gonna um, relate to that, but uh, I do use field points to get me close. Um, you know, you can certainly it's easy to to shoot down there without changing your poundage. You can move your point weight forty to fifty grains and see really quick. Okay, holy cow! Yeah, those groups just sucked right together, or actually it didn't change much, um, and then make your move pretty much from there so uh appreciate that question dude hopefully i answered it for you uh let's see oh well here's luke dietering uh is the one asking that question hey dud is aligning broadheads to veins critical 
I did some Googling, and most sources say it's not important, but uh, you're where the buck stops for me. Thanks in advance. So, Luke, um, I'm a believer that it does matter. Um, And actually, I had this conversation with Ulmer um, at an ATA show several years ago, and I had the conversation with him specifically after he had wrote an article saying that it did not matter. And I told him, listen, dude, I don't know if if your setups have always just been where it didn't matter, but factor in other elements that a lot of other people have in addition. Like, for example, Randy shoots like he's pretty much shot some of the same exact broadheads forever he doesn't play around with them i'm sure he experiments with them and sees what different ones work but for the longest time he still shot those rocky mountain turbos for his fixed blade head Um, and those flew really good because they were actually a little bit offset and they spun so you know in those situations and the types of you know Randy's a little bit more unorthodox in his setup and tuning. So, and Andy's he's super eccentric about it and unorthodox. So, um, he puts in a lot more time than the average person, and he shoots setups that are way stranger than the average person because he's really focused on getting a 30 yard or less shot on a big muley and kind of just leaving at that. So, um, I would really, I know for me personally, indexing, the higher you go in speed, uh, the shorter you go in vein. So a lot of people are shooting short, high profile veins. Both of those start to matter. Um, and just, strictly a hundred percent broadhead design um i've had i know that for me back when i shot shuttle t-locks with shuttle t's um it made a big difference when i shot shuttle t's and at that time i was shooting a um a fusion vein which is a short high profile vein i had to index all of them the exact same and then they flew awesome so what I did for that was um, G5 actually makes a very cool tool called the ASD. Um, and the ASD is pretty much an arrow squaring device. So it's a little device that you set your arrow in and you roll the arrow and the arrow is pretty much up against. On one side it has like a, a sharp edge that will actually peel off um like it'll almost um chamfer your aluminum if you have an aluminum arrow or uh, it's got a diamond grinder on the other side of this little thing that that kind of flips around so you can put the arrow on there you push it up against that grinder or that chamfer and you just roll the arrow and it slightly takes off material off the end of your shaft and Um, it perfectly squares off the end of that shaft. So if you have an arrow cutter that was a little bit wacky, um, it'll, it'll actually square it, which is why it's called an ASD arrow squaring device. Um, and it works really, really good. 
and uh, what I did was I would just sit there and file those arrows down enough until I would be able to tighten them on and perfectly align uh, my broad heads and all that stuff. So uh, just to finish up here, I'm actually going to go back through a few questions um, that I'm looking at here on um, my social media because I'm podcasting live right now. Um, so, uh, one of the questions here that I'm just seeing right now is from Aaron 73s asking, um, obviously they, they've been talking a little bit about, uh, veins on here. People have been chatting, but he's saying, um, how can I be sure of the angle that I'm, uh, putting on, uh, my arrow with my bits and burger? Well, you know, you're going to have to measure it. Otherwise the wrap pads that I make, um, the knock-on wrap pads, you can get them at knockonarchery.com. I have a little chart with um, on the little pad there. There's kind of shows you how to apply vinyl, and I've got lines with predetermined degree of angles on there, so you can see what your degree is from one, two, and three degree. Uh, that really helps. Otherwise, you kind of need to just line it up and measure it. Um, I really like a Bits and Burger. I think it's um I think the Bits and Burger's been a really good forever jig for me. So um I really enjoy it and works super good. Um I guess the other thing too I wanna give a shout out. Um so Sharon um had kinda had this I forget where we were, we were traveling somewhere and she came up with an idea to like make an evolution of the bow hunter type uh, shirt, just pretty much based on, you know, the infamous theory of evolution uh, picture where it's, you know, monkey to man. Um, her thought was just to have like the evolution of weaponry from someone just wanting to stab something or club something to someone wanting to have an awesome compound bow. Um, so we came out with that shirt. You can see it on the website, uh, knockonarchery.com. Um, you can see it on my social media too, but man, we got some pissed off people. <laughs> people kind of took that way too deep and, um, started, you know, really diving into my religious views and my, my personal character as a person, uh, just because, uh, just because I had monkey to man with with weaponry uh for a t-shirt so yeah right now i'm actually wearing um my dia de arco hoodie and uh just because i'm wearing a dia de arco hoodie does not mean that i believe in um skeletons tripped out on meth and archery targets um it just means it was a cool design and uh, take it, <laughs> take it and just good heart and good humor. That's all there is to it. Um, let's see. I'm just looking back through a few more questions here. Um, I've actually got one more here, uh, that I saw on social media. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. I just got home from my first day of archery season. Also caught a small portion recorded on my phone. Um, just broke down my first white-tailed doe by myself for the first time. Just wanted to say thanks again. 
Um, thank you for all the coaching and inspiration. Uh, gonna go for a bike ride now. Okay, so this is actually, um, I don't know if he posted this. The reason I screenshotted this is because I did watch his video and I thought maybe some of you watching might wanna see it too. So um, it's from the um, Instagram person is sent from Daniel, one, one continual word sent from Daniel and he kind of self-filmed himself uh, whacking a doe off the ground. He was standing and kind of got in perfect position. Um, and the reason I screenshot that now I remember is because I wanted people to watch it. So um, it should be somewhere in his uh, social media. Let me try to see if I can find it here quick um, while we're talking. Um, so yeah, you'd have to go back to, well, let's see, sent from Daniel. I don't think you, uh, I don't think you posted it publicly, dude. So you're going to have to now, um, you're going to, when you listen to this podcast, you're going to have to post that, um, your doe shot. But what I liked about it is how much time you spent looking down at your feet, getting positioned really well kind of setting up for your shot and then just raising up and uh, making an awesome shot. So I thought it was really good um, tact and poise, um, showed a lot of composure. And um, I wanted, I really wanted you to, to get some credit for it and let some other people enjoy it. Um, question here I see right now is from 97Chad. Um, he's asking if anyone knows if there's the difference between the silverback um, and the evolution um, besides the amount of fingers on the release. So nowadays, um, there's been some changes made even on the newer evolutions um, to kind of keep in, in line with, um, with some of the changes that we made on the silverback. Um, so yeah, if you're buying a brand new evolution now, um, it's pretty much going to be the same thing. Uh, back when, back before we made the changes on things, um, probably not. That's just like, uh, right now with like my arrow rests, um, the elevate rests, they're actually, um, there's another batch coming right now that I think are going to be the ones that I finally released to the archery shops too. Um, because we've got a brand new cage that I don't want to say it's unbreakable, but it's dang near unbreakable. Um, I actually got a video of Greg Poole, who's pretty much, he's pretty much a white gorilla with a ponytail and a tropical shirt. That's what Greg Poole is. Um, a white ponytailed gorilla with um, a Hawaiian button-up shirt. That's what he's like. And I kind of gave him one of those cages to play with, like gorillas play with things in the zoo. And he spun that thing around about 50 times and couldn't get it to break. So um, that's not a challenge, but um, the cages, the new cages um, are made of a brand new material that allows them to bend. Um, you can also almost get them back to the exact same spot. So if you snag that thing on something, really severely and bent the cage all the way around your bow grip you could pretty much bend the cage back to where it was uh, the other thing too is the whale tail 
will now be in octagon. So your launcher rests and your whale tail can use the exact same bracket uh, to go on or come off, which is going to be really good. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's going to be that. Um, so that rest will probably end up coming out for some other manufacturer too now that i've made it that awesome but we'll see maybe they'll keep it for me but uh yeah if you're if you're hard up uh or if you see an evolution they they are pretty much right on right now uh with it but i'm just really all about um having people shoot two fingers i think a lot of people's accuracy are coming from that um, let's see. Next question here is from Preston.Dodd. He's asking about low poundage broadheads. Um, the wife is going out with me tomorrow on her first hunt. Pulls 36 pounds. Sounds just like um, where Sharon started. So um, when Sharon shot 36 pounds um, and Harry both, they shot an Easton Axis 600. Um, and I actually had them shooting two different heads they um the one that i feel like really was the best right now they're shooting trocars trocars a good one but um the g5 montec is when because at one time sharon and harry both shot 30 pounds um and the montec uh is a good cut on impact head uh you can get a really good edge on it they're pretty indestructible uh well i shouldn't say they're indestructible because it the original ones are like a MIM process, which is metal injection molding. And that's almost more like a, like a porous type metal. It's not like a solid machined ferrule. So they could break, um, but they're probably definitely not going to break at that poundage. Um, let's see here. Uh, G-Web 12, Rage Hypodermics. Do you want the blades horizontal or vertical when installed so um, with my hypodermics i don't really pay attention to my blade positioning because they're so compact what i will tell you though about hypodermics is with that shock collar you'll notice that that collar has six slits in it so in other words there's six little slits in that you'll want to make sure that if you know i'm grabbing a piece of paper right now i'm grabbing a post-it note so um the edges of the post-it note are pretty much imagine those being the slits on that collar so the collar it's rounded um you know there's like a flat piece of plastic and then there's a slit through it and then there's a flat piece of plastic and a slit through it you want to make sure that your blade is in the center of the flat piece of plastic do not have the blade on the actual slit that's in that plastic. Um, the slit is not for the blade to sit on. That'll actually have your air have that broadhead open prematurely. Um, what you want to do is set the blade in the dead center of that plastic tab because the plastic tab is meant to flip back and break off and snap off um, as that that um, blade is deployed so make sure that you have it in the center of that other than that um, if you want to align them i would say it depends on your fletch um, 
because it's a two blade, uh, if you're shooting a three fletch, then just pick probably your cock vein and just go straight up or straight down. Uh, I think I actually just the other day was looking through pictures, um, where I accidentally shot my finger. Um, I kind of let my finger get too high on my riser when I was holding it. And I actually shot my finger, um, with a rage and it cut, it cut it all the way to the bone. Um, so yeah, be careful not to shoot your finger off with a broadhead. Um, so just for that reason alone, putting them up and down is going to be important. The main thing, depending on the type of riser you have, one thing that you might want to look at is some people, um, depending on the type of arrow rest they have or the type of shelf they have, how it's cut out or whether it's flat, if you have a big blade, sometimes they may contact either an arrow holder that's in front of your arrow rest, or they may even be very, very close to touching the inside of your riser. So just take a look at that clearance uh, before you make those adjustments. Um, let's see. Will the silverback help with bad habits? For sure. No question. Um, let's see. For someone else asking a question, uh, Roy Blankenbaker is asking four or six fletch. Um, it's new to him. I honestly, the six fletch looks really cool flying down range. If you're not a super long range shooter, if you're like a whitetail hunter, um, that six fletch is awesome and it can steer a lot of really cool broadheads. Um, Let's see here. Got any suggestions for bad release habits like snaking the trigger? I don't know if you might mean smacking the trigger. Um, had the habit since I started and can't break it. So yeah, most likely what you're going to have to do to break that habit is probably get to a different type of release. What I found is once you've developed a habit punching, especially when you're punching with the same finger all the time, um, just kind of taking that particular mind muscle connection out of the equation, um, can help you a lot. Um, having no trigger at all is probably going to be the best help. Um, but also having someone to talk with you as you're going through that, um, is really, really important. That's why a big part of me curing people's target panic, I can give you a lot of the tools, but the problem is I can't completely give you the reinforcement as you're going, um, which is unfortunate. That's one thing that I that I really don't uh, that I don't like is not being able to give you guys mental reinforcement as we're going. Uh, but if you've got a long time habit of punching the trigger, changing literally changing fingers is going to be big and eliminating the trigger aspect altogether would also be big. And then you're going to, you know, a good coach will help you with a little bit of reprogramming. And that's what I do when I work with a lot of my students. And especially when I go and work at centers and I'm working with people for multiple days is just trying to spend several days reinforcing, uh, and talking through that is really, really important. Um, Let's see, will the new bow sight 
I assume we're talking about the Sherlock, um, have a vertical pin option. Yeah, it's going to have, it's going to actually, I don't know if I can say this. So it'll actually have the option for multiple pin directions. So you can actually take your pin and you can shoot an up pin, quarter pin, side pin. Um, you're going to be able to choose how you like to address your target and go with it from there. So thanks for the question, Aaron 73 HWT. Um, so I appreciate everyone joining in here. Um, so a lot of people are joining in online on Instagram. Instagram's my favorite. Sorry, Facebook, but you, uh, you got too greedy and were squeezing off my followers because I wasn't paying you, which I've never paid. So I guess that's what they do. If you don't pay, I kind of figured once you pay once, then they really got you. So, um, Instagram's pretty good. Although Instagram's kind of a sneaky sucker too, because see on this phone right here, this is my bat phone. So I've got like, I've got one phone that I use for like 99% of people. And then I've got my bat phone that's like when I don't want to talk to 99% of people. And the bat phone actually has notifications turned on. And I do that just to see. And over half the time, the bat phone doesn't get notifications that I'm live. So, uh, however, Instagram and Facebook always give me notifications that if I want to maximize my reach, I have to give them some cash, but I don't, uh, I don't float cash for friends. Friends will find us, I think. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably it. It is September 30th season opens for a lot of people tomorrow for whitetail. And, uh, I'm excited I'm going to watch Harry race today. He's uh, he's running up by Waverly, Iowa. So if any of your kids are up there running by Waverly, Iowa, I'll be up there too uh, watching the college ru run. So if any of you are up there, um, come up and give me a jumping high five. Most people have to do a jumping high five to get up to my high five. I know Rogan does. He's definitely got to do a running jump to get up there. Um, but I appreciate everything from everybody. Uh, make sure you. Oh gosh, I gotta. Uh, I'm gonna give a thanks. Gosh dang it! I don't. I'm gonna have to properly give it. But um, one of you out there, you know who you are. I got um, a couple awesome gifts this week sent to the PO box. One was a very cool grilling, uh, a set of Cutco grilling utensils, um, and a thank you card for what um, for what what I do for all of you with the podcast and stuff, which is kind of why um, this podcast is I don't know it might be reaching two hours now. Um, so I appreciate that the heck out of it. Um, all of you up in South Dakota at the fire truck factory that built me that big ass um, diamond plate slash line next 
um, LED lit knock-on sign. I don't know if that I kind of want to put that um, at the at the range um, where I do a lot of the live feeds in the winter time. Those will be coming up pretty soon. However, it's not safe there because between Torsten and Chad Mendez, both of them shot holes through my knock-on banner and through the outside of my freaking wall. I didn't know that until recently. Um, but yeah, they literally, both of them uh, had a, had some mishaps or they were just jacking around while I was out turkey hunting and uh, launched arrows about 15 feet over my target <laughs> through through the outside wall of my school so uh thanks for that guys and that's the one reason i mean it's diamond plating so maybe it would just be extremely loud uh if someone shot it but i don't know i don't know if i'm going to trust it there um the next thing too uh my homie down at archery country and then also my buddy that i met um that I met down at Archery Country while I was down there uh, for the hurricane relief. Uh, he's a big smiley dude with a defiant tattoo on his arm. And uh, he actually bought in an auction. I forgot what they call it. It's like armor drinks or something. But it's literally like a full-size pelican case. And when you open it up. It's got a perfectly cut out thing for a brand new big bottle of Maker's Mark and two Yeti low balls uh, fit in there. So I feel like uh, I should bracelet that to my arm. So there's been a couple really cool gifts that uh, that some of you out there have given and I really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, make sure you check out uh, new shirts and stuff on the store. Appreciate all the support. Uh, definitely helps make all this stuff possible. So knock on, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.